Hey everyone, and welcome to the Open Minds Podcast, where we try to open each other up different perspectives and remain open-minded to all incoming thoughts and opinions. I'm Jake. I'm Cole. And I'm Neral. And we're high school seniors from outside Philadelphia. While listening, we hope you guys keep an open mind with us. In a world that's too closed-minded, we're here to help you open yours, cause we're the open minds. Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to let you know that this episode is part one of a two-part series. We split episode three into two parts for two reasons. One, our conversations went on a little longer than usual. And because of that, we wanted to chop the episode up into digestible bits. And two, I tested positive for COVID. We did everything for episode three virtually because of that. And we wanted to minimize the amount of time that we spent doing the podcast virtually. That way, later on, we can maximize our time doing the podcast authentically. So basically, everything is as normal. Just episode three will be released as part one this Wednesday the 10th and part two next Wednesday, the 17th. Thanks, and let's jump right in. You know what I've been thinking about recently, guys? I feel like people don't properly rate things from one to 10. I feel like overall, like they just don't, the rating system and the way we interpret it is just like incorrect. For example, right? Let me just give you an example real quick. If I rate something like a six, like people interpret that as bad, but it shouldn't be, right? No, I think it is. I mean, I would say that is bad because, you know, six out of 10 is 60%. You know? Here's here's the issue, everybody. It's above average, though. Six out of 10, what does that reduce to? Three out of five. That's a good score. That's not bad. Bad is like below five. I think a lot of the time it has to do with our equivalency of a rating to a test score where we think 60% is garbage, but like... I guess if you're hitting more than half the the checks um, in the boxes, then I guess that's still a win. But like when you look at like movies with like a sixty percent like Rotten Tomato score, like you're not like that's not going to be the best movie of all time. I mean, yeah, true. But I feel like that's even the root of the problem too. Is like tests too because you know you did you did better than half. Uh, I feel like that's that should be good. Why not? Uh, I disagree completely. I think. You know, having if you're only gonna get like a sixty percent, that means you didn't get forty percent, and that's all. That's a huge chunk of it too. So I feel like if you're gonna, yeah, pessimist. Maybe <laughs> that's a maybe. good point, and that is a little pessimistic. But I feel like this might be even like rooted in like our as a species, our need to be perfect. You know what I mean? Like everybody wants a ten or a nine or an eight, but even a seven, pe- people think a seven is is average. A seven's okay. I think a seven should be great, you know? I think like a lot of us do, when we put ourselves through like these examinations or like a piece of media through these examinations, our goal is mastery, right? Like you're, you're trying to create like the perfect everything. I think like, although it may not necessarily be a bad result, it's still not like an intended result or um, maybe a result that's like worth the amount of time you spent on like a topic or something like that. Like if you think I got a 70 on a test and I spent like an hour studying, like what, what was the value of that? And I think it has to do with like the value of, of like the allotted maybe time, but also like your understanding of a subject, which could be interpreted as like worse than it actually is in terms of a number system. 
But like, since it's subjective, it's still bad. Yeah, I think it's a good. It's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. I think one of the other things I want to bring up is that a lot of people are getting nines and tens, so getting a seven or a six is worse. Like if you see so many people getting nines or tens, then automatically a seven or six is ten times worse because you can see other people doing so much better. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point, but I feel like that's also maybe rooted in our um, kind of, I'd call it an issue, our issue of like comparing ourselves to others, you know, like not everything's a competition. And if you're you're not going to be the best at everything, so, you know, you might as well take what you got, I think. Yeah, I think like... You're, you're right, yeah, you're not going to be the best at everything, but, like, don't you think those things that you are the best at should have that value comparison to other things? Yes. Like, if you have, you should, like, kind of float that 10 out of 10 against someone else's 6 out of 10 if that's your strong suit. I guess not, like, boast about it, but, like, be able to articulate it in that sense. I guess that's fair. Um, all right, so then I'd, I guess I'd shift to say, because you are kind of convincing me a bit that, like, why wouldn't you want a 10? Why wouldn't you be disappointed that you got a 6? But... Can, can we agree that I feel like when people do rate something a five or a six or a four, I feel like their ratings are off, especially for a five. Would we agree with that? Definitely. What do you mean? What do you mean they're off? I would. I think we're talking about, you're talking about media, right? Like media, like pieces of, uh, of, of art. And stuff like that. I'm talking about everything. Yeah. Art, um, music. I, but I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of tests. I'm thinking of school, like uh, scores, stuff like that, like. A 50% is not good. Like, it is the opposite. Yeah. Like, I think if you separate media from academics, sure, a 5 out of 10, like for a movie, you hit 5 out of 10, 10 of the boxes, that's, that's okay. It's not good, but it's okay. You get 50% of the information on a test, that's terrible. That's true. I, I'd say I am towards media then more so um, because I feel like a 5 is not bad. It's not good, but what you give a 5, people, it's like the worst thing ever. You'll give a 5, I think. Yeah, I think it's because a movie or like media, any type of media has a lot of work put into it. And if you say it only checks five of the boxes, that's pretty bad. I mean, like what Jake was saying, like if you spend an hour on a test studying and you get a 50%, it sucks. And I think... That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay, I concede a little bit there then. <laughs> All right, do we want to move on to uh, the wheel? Yes, let's go to the wheel. is my topic first um so my topic is kind of broad it's the global market for human dna and uh let me explain that first of all so yeah what does that mean yeah so in our world today everything's about data and everything's about okay who like countries and uh things want to collect the data of their people and everything right Human DNA is the future of that data. Who, like, which country is going to have the biggest DNA database? And I want to explore kind of the pros and cons of that that whole thing. So, yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting topic because um, genetic diversity is actually really important for a species to live and thrive. So, as we develop, I guess the country that has greater genetic diversity is probably going to be more successful in the long run. Yeah. Uh, so right now you see a lot of, you know, 
Ancestry.com, 23andMe, all of these uh, DNA kind of collector and analyzer people who give you information back on, okay, this is your heritage. This is, okay, this is, um, this is a part of your DNA that makes you more susceptible to heart disease. This is a part of the DNA that makes you more susceptible to cancer, right? And, and those researches are very important. But the problem comes in when these companies, Ancestry, 23andMe, they are selling our DNA to third-party like ventures and every everything to go with that, right? So when Ancestry.com takes your DNA and you say, I consent to them analyzing my DNA and them using my DNA, you are also consenting them to sell your DNA to a healthcare provider who analyzes that DNA and can... Uh, jack up your insurance prices because of that. Yeah. Um, you, so the two companies you said were 23andMe and Ancestry.com, right? Yes. So is there a conspiracy behind that? Like, is it confirmed that they sell your DNA or is, is that a conspiracy theory? It is not confirmed, but in their, like, in their, like, licensing arguments, licensing arguments uh, they say, like, we sell to third party people. Oh, my God. Right. It's and like hidden in their terms and conditions. It's the thing. It's not hidden because there have been like lawsuits about this and people know people agree to it because, you know, there are a lot of benefits to it, you know, getting seeing, OK, I have a healthcare issue here. Yeah, I remember seeing something about like um, their relationship with Google, about them like hiding information with um, Google. And, and it turns out the CEO of Ancestry.com is like the, the sister-in-law of one of the like Google execs. Um, and apparently there was something going on there with selling their information to Google and other um, companies like them to kind of manipulate like search results and advertising to match specific like DNA like needs, like healthcare needs, stuff like that. Like um, like for like insulin and stuff like that, like diabetic people get like, about like insulin and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of people were like even doubting the validity of those tests at all um, because of like the tracking of your ancestry through your saliva. Um, people were like questioning the science behind that. Um, so a lot of people just thought it's kind of like this whole um, like economic marketing tactic to just tar- um, like literally target people to the T um, for products and stuff like that. So they thought it was fake, you're saying? They thought like the whole Ancestry and 23andMe thing was yeah. totally a farce. Yeah, I was. I thought this was all a conspiracy, but if there, I didn't know about like lawsuits and stuff like that. I thought it was too, because I actually remember hearing that like same exact information that something with someone's wife was like Google and 23andMe, something was connected there. But what I really wonder is like, what's the point? Why do you want to store DNA? How does that help you? Um, I saw like one of the biggest things about this whole conspiracy was like that these companies are are saving the DNA, they're freezing it, um, labeling something like that for to sell to people in the future um, when more advanced technologies come out, like saying maybe for like revitalization, stuff like that. Like we can make you X years uh, younger, but you'll need a sample of your DNA from 20 years ago. But we have it, $6,000 right here if you want to buy it. Um, yeah. We were saying like it, it's it's kind of a um, proactive medical measure 
to sell biological product to somebody from their youth when that technology is, is needed. Yeah, and I want to kind of explore the pros and cons of this, right? Um, well, obviously a pro is that it can help you identify like health issues, cancer, um, all these uh, Alzheimer's you we discussed has a genetic link, all these diseases. But a con is now that countries um, like China, especially China, is having um, basically their entire population, they're controlling and they're able to sample their DNA and they're storing in a DNA database, right? And there's actually an article that I want to cite here um, from CBS News that says the report estimates that these DNA profiles can be used to construct genetic links to China's entire male population, roughly 700 million people, right? How dangerous is that to say that they have 700 million people's DNA versus the pro of, okay, yeah, now we're able to use this DNA to anticipate diseases uh, in people, Super dangerous. I mean, I did not know that was a thing that China has, you know, that much DNA storage of their population. Yeah, it's dangerous. And, um, you know, as we're weighing the pros and cons here, it kind of seems like the pros don't really matter compared to those cons, I would say. I don't know if you guys would agree or not, but. Yeah, I think like it has to do with like just how much control of the Chinese population the Chinese government has and how little influence the Chinese people have on their um, government and kind of like we were saying about like the pros and cons it's like what, what's the, the benefit here if like I can like uh, my, my DNA and my genetic makeup is in the hands of like six of the most powerful people in the world but I know I'm like 2% like Bulgarian like it I don't see like the, the pros to it at all besides maybe like a cool like Christmas gift um but I think like it all comes down to a uh, an almost universal truth and a sad universal truth in our day and age of how uh, companies and how markets work, um, of there being a deeper revelation to every single product the more you look into it. Like no product is how it is at face value. Um, I think that luxury Absolutely. is kind of over. Absolutely. And I feel like that kind of brings us to the question of almost, you know, not really false advertising, but kind of um, misdirecting the consumer and kind of how ethical is that? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would say companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, they have a bigger responsibility to show their consumer where they're selling the information because their DNA is the person. I I, I don't think anybody can argue that the DNA is the person. And if you're selling the DNA, you're kind of selling the person. And yeah. I feel like they have a bigger responsibility to show their consumer that. Um, but I, I would, when I first researched this, I was definitely on the more pro side and saying, okay, really? we can regulate the use of this because there are so many pros. For example, um, the United States even has a DNA database for um, criminals and um, uh, DNA of, like uh, offenders and all that people. And I think it's around 14 million of, of, of offenders and all of criminals. They have the DNA. And that has been linked to about, let me see here, 500,000 uh, investigations. It's helped 500,000 investigations. Wow. And 
that to me, if we are able to regulate and say, okay, the DNA can only be used for these three things, or I feel like that is the way to go. I don't, I don't think that we can completely disregard, completely ban this sort of practice because it has so many pros. I think it is the future of our civilization to be able to use our DNA in helpful ways. I think, yeah, that, that's an interesting distinction between the kind um, of the pros and cons and how they're being used, like in the police policing system and judicial system. Um, but I think that's like it, it, just a really dangerous precedent to set when you can use like people's biological makeup that they've sent to companies to kind of track their um, involvement in crimes, even if it is a crime and it's illicit and they have kind of forfeited their rights to privacy. Um, I, I don't know. It, it seems like it's it's too much power being put into the hands of people that you don't fully, like unelected individuals, people who, who are not governing by the consent of the governed. Um, and I, I, it's almost like a, a market oligarchy of, of individuals who are controlling people from strings like so, so far away. Um, and, and it feels really um, dangerous and, and, and like something that I don't think should be kind of accepted. Yeah, I'd probably agree with Jake there because um, you I do see a lot more of the pros with that. I did not know it helped that much in, you know, like crime investigation and stuff like that. But this type of power is like like how do you regulate it you know what i mean i don't know how you would where you would even start um i will say too the pros are mostly for the future they're not for now they're not a tangible thing so i feel it's it's a little unfair that it's gonna it's probably not even the future i'm talking about is like generations from now so it's kind of unfair that our generation is screwed privacy wise um to benefit others later on but I don't know, because the more I think about it, too, the pros are pretty big, um, like de-aging. I know this is connected to de-aging technology, and that is definitely an important thing. Um, but yeah, I'd say, it, you, I don't know, you, you have to weigh both the pros and cons, and just, I don't know how you'd regulate um, this technology, even though there are pros. Yeah, I definitely like, I think the, the regulation aspect of this is probably the biggest. Um, because I think so often in um, market-based, um, like large economic power-based, uh, like in power systems where um, this small body is exerting just an, an incredible amount of power and influence upon um, the public. Like I think in so many instances in uh, most free market societies, it, it's fully up to the consumer to choose to indulge in the action or choose to boycott the action. Um, and I think that like when we put that much responsibility on individual people, I think it's really, really hard um, to create like actual change um, and, and actual like structural differences in how these companies are organized and how they operate. Because like we, do you guys know governments can regulate this stuff? <laughs> like we can, we can pass legislation and create agencies to monitor these organizations in the benefit of the public. Like I think we like inactive, completely reactionary bodies like Congress are, are so inept and, and unwilling to change this because usually that's where a lot of their money comes from. 
Um, and also like, you know how much easier it is just to let like individuals decide to use a product or not. Um, and of course people are still going to use the product because people like some people just aren't going to care. Um, and I think like that can kind of destroy the entire foundation of like a, a, a pro privacy, um, movement or something like that. Um, and I think like it, it's kind of a really unfair responsibility that's put on the general public for no reason. Yeah. I think they're kind of swaying me, I guess a bit. Um, cause I do feel like the consumer is not going to read the argument and the agreement and say, okay, I'm not going to do this because it's selling my, um, information. Um, I feel I still feel like it has so many pros that are possible that you know even like other data that is being used um, like uh, other data that's sold to big big uh, big companies and all that like the data that Google finds the data that uh, Amazon uses right I think that has the same argument right is is it too is it have the pro or is it uh, forfeiting our privacy for just a little bit more of conveniency and i think i think in this case i would still err on the side of that the conveniency is not really conveniency it's actually uh, a scientific breakthrough or scientific uh, advancement that we need to uh indulge in or at least um, allow to happen because we need to be able to help ourselves in a way that okay if a little girl is having um uh like a like recurrent uh diseases over and over again and we're able to say okay this person's dna can be helped can help use to save this little girl i think if, even if you're able to save one life using that i feel like that's that justifies like having some regulation on that yeah, but um, I totally get what you're saying, but I feel like the question remains, you know, at what cost? Um, because I agree, uh, this would lead to huge scientific advancements and developments, but I think it's key to remember that what you're talking about is in the future. It's not now. We know the capability of, um, of a technology like this. So, but I still feel like that doesn't justify what's going on now. We're looking too much into the future and not enough now when the real issue, I would say, is misdirecting the consumer. I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but that's what I would say. And I think ethically and legally, you can't do something like that. Hmm. I think like when you're talking about misdirection of the consumer, what, what company nowadays is not like predicated on, on misdirecting? Like what major powerful company is not predicated on, on that kind of idea um like i can't talk about the amount of times where i've like our, our one of our teachers just said like okay everybody get your phones off or we're gonna do a kahoot before class and the number one recommended app on my phone is kahoot and like i haven't opened it in like four weeks um or like when i'm having a conversation over facetime or zoom and i say the word ikea in two hours i'll text you if i get an ikea ad or something like that like people sacrifice civil liberties or unwillingly in the um acquisition of of money and of capital of power um like i and i and i really don't know who's like I, I think both the consumer and the company are to blame for this because like you can't i i guess like all of that information is out there like the terms of conditions who reads the terms of conditions right like i have no never 
read a, a word of them in my entire life. Um, yet I'm sure every single civil liberty I'm forfeiting is on page 3,451 of that document, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's when regulatory bodies have to come in and say, hey, like, you cannot get away with selling people's conversations to other companies because you had it in a size three font in the middle of this 8,000 word document, right? Like there should yeah. be like warnings and stuff like that for like types of civilities you forfeit. And I think that really comes down to this conversation um, on like if 23andMe and Ancestry are doing this in the name of scientific advancement, in the name of um, future benefit, like where do we draw that line on this is good or this is bad and how like what what like what are we forfeiting and how do we even know that is bad mm-hmm. in the moment yeah and I, I think the question too becomes to what you're talking about how you know everything you're sacrificing is in the terms and conditions but um i think the question really is who is more at fault is it the companies or the consumer because you know the information's there but also like you said it's three point font in an eight eight thousand word document so who's more responsible? I would say, I would say the responsibility does fall on the company to better inform the consumer instead of like, cause I mean, like Jake's saying, a lot of those terms and conditions, you're not, nobody's going to read them. And the company knows that the company is willingly putting that in the page 3,451 or whatever. And I think that I would put that on the company more to better inform the consumer as to what they're using their data for that's where i'm actually going to disagree i think it is on the on, on the consumer i think that that willing ignorance of um like a, a temporary um benefit for like the, the ramifications of your like ignorance in that specific moment are so much larger than what you actually think of and i think like it, although it's not like the fault of the individual consumer, I think it's the the fault of the like the general consumer, like the idea of the general consumer, of how we kind of prioritize um, what we purchase and how we act in the market. Um, and I think like also these companies are doing these things because it's it's legal. They are allowed to do these things. Why wouldn't they? It's wrong. Yes, companies don't care about what's wrong, what's ethical anymore. That's not the goal of companies. Companies are, are created to gain power and money. And when you're giving companies tools to gain power and money, unlike anything we've seen since like, I don't even know, it's, it's, it's unprecedented, right? Like there's no, there's no historical comparison to how companies act nowadays because people are like, people are tools, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I would actually kind of disagree, I guess, with both of you and go in between. Um, and I'd say it, it's not really one or the other. It can't be. It's the company's fault for misdirection. And in a way, it's the consumer's fault for not reading the terms of conditions. But in a way, they're already in an unfair system. The company diluted um, the important words in uh, a 4,000-page document so that the consumer already doesn't read it. But I feel the responsibility is up to Congress um, to legislate on something like this because, as Jake, you said, what company doesn't misdirect the consumer these days? It, uh, I even remember – to remember the whole Apple scandal where they were like making your batteries worse mm-hmm. and yeah. um, 
that or the old phones they made the batteries worse so you'd get a new phone so it's it's all companies nowadays and it's it's up to our government i think to kind of regulate stuff like that yeah and i actually kind of i mean i kind of want to redirect the conversation now to countries versus countries um because china especially is now I mean, recently there was a group called BGI Group, and they were involved in COVID testing for the United States of America. And uh, the government actually barred, banned them from creating any research facilities here because of the fact that they were going to sell their data, like the consumer's data, to um, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Do you think that um, the countries like do you think the united states of america should be able to ban some ban a company like a different company from coming here to do covid testing just because of the threat of selling data or selling dna data to uh, a different country so i think i'm going to start kind of strong and i'll maybe dilute my thought a little bit but hell yeah 100 percent the United States is the world's most powerful democratic regime, and we have a, a responsibility, I believe, to project that idea of democracy and the protection of civil liberties and the protection of the public um, from autocracies and from um, powerful governments in basically every single facet of how we conduct foreign policy and how we act in the international community. Um, I think condoning the Chinese government at all based on how they treat their citizens and how they treat technology is is an absolute disservice to everything the United States stands for. I think this sentiment applies wholeheartedly to this conversation about the organization of genetic material and how that genetic material is preserved. But I think like we're also talking about unprecedented times. If people need to get tested for coronavirus, and like, I it, it's such an ethical dilemma here because you have like individuals who, who need testing. Like, we all needed testing this week just because of what's happening in our school. But like, what if the only way to get that was to 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 put our genetic material in the hands of a government that we can't vote for, and the citizens don't vote for either? <laughs> like this 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 party of of revolving door um, governing individuals who who just kind of get to control basically every aspect of society that they touch um i think like in that instance the united states should um either agree to something like that with the most conditions possible um and the protection of their citizens civil liberties because that is one of the most important aspects of how our government functions or how it was designed to function 300 years ago um you could argue that sentiment does not apply at all today um but i think the united states still has a responsibility to um, adhere to those ideas of democracy in every aspect of their foreign policy. Yeah, so so you're saying we should ban those companies from coming here because of the risk of the data that they'll sell? Um, yeah, I, I think that they should be forced, not forced, but they should only be allowed to operate if their policy adheres to how, um, it adheres to the values um, that we collectively hold as Americans. Yeah, I would say it's just a matter of doing your homework. 
on the company that is coming here. What what was the original company from Neral? The original company who um, who went to China to do the COVID tests. What country was that company f- from? No, actually, the company, the BGI Group, is from China, created in China, and uh-huh. came to the United States, Washington specifically, uh, the state oh. Washington, and wrote a letter and said, okay, we want to help with COVID testing. Can we create a facility here? And the F, I think, I forget which exact government agency, but I'm going to guess, uh, the FBI maybe uh, said no and did not allow the um, the company to create a research facility there. Oh, okay. I, I had it all wrong. For some reason, I thought the research facility was in China. But um. Yeah, no, I actually think we do have the right to do that because it does get a little suspicious when China is setting up your COVID test centers. Um, And especially when those test centers, the authority of the test centers there, the power there is out of your control. It's out of your hands. So I actually do think that was a good move. I think this is one of the uh, first aspects of the United States being victim to neocolonialism. Um, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's kind of the idea of um, private companies coming over from large, large, like you, you, I'm um, usually colonial, but I guess China's not a colonial power. So, like the, these just large parties coming over in the name of private organizations, but actually representing the values of a large state um, and kind of influencing. Like it happens all the time in Africa, happens in Nigeria and their oil control, um, it happens in Kenya. Um, and like just so many other, usually um, LDCs, which is definitely um, less developed countries, um, where these kind of powers come in, either if it's like Sunoco, the United States, like an oil company, if it's like a timber company um, in the Amazon, where we come in the name of private power, we come in the name of um, X company, but we're representing the values of the United States and the values of the wealthy in the United States. Um, this is the exact same, like it is, it is so interesting to think that now the United States can be victim to this power because of how fast China is growing. Um, and I think if you know anything about Chinese political structure, you know that private companies don't exist. Um, the BIG group can, cl- can claim that they are um, just like a private company conducting COVID testing in the United States. That's just not how their structure is allowed to function um, in Chinese bureaucracy, right? They are like unilaterally controlled by the Chinese government and have very like strong influences to the state, both economically and politically. Um, so I think it's like it's really strange that now even MDCs, more developed countries, and first world powers are now being victim from new colonialism from other MDCs. And I think it's a really um, interesting precedent to set, especially during this time. So how do you guys think uh, the United States should combat this type of things? Because China is going to continue doing this, right? China is not going to stop um, trying to neo-colonize the world um, through the use of DNA data. How do you, do you think the United States should start doing it themselves? Should start going um, trying to do this, or do you think how do you how would they combat this? Because this is kind of a global issue that China is perpetuating, but there's no real person you can say okay china stop that can like has that authority so how do you how do you how do you condone like how do you regulate this i think if we're talking on a a national level i think it has to do with each country um standing up for their own sovereignty and making a declaration of their sovereignty against 
um, neo-colonial powers and saying, we have autonomy and sovereignty in this territory. Your allegiance to another state in the name of, of companies is like, we know like the, the reason behind it. And we know like that it's the assertion of power from another country. Um, and we are only going to comply to your requests with conditions of our own and conditions that protect our sovereignty. And, and um, I think like when national communities, especially ones that are a lot less powerful than the United States, like it, it's very hard to make those decisions because of the potential benefits that a country like China um, can bring to you because they're just so incredibly wealthy right now. Um, and I think from a supranational level, from an international level, um, I think it has to do with bodies like the United Nations and um, like the World Trade Organization, stuff like that, standing up for each other because I believe that we are only as strong as, as we are united. Um, and, and coming together and kind of saying like on behalf of either democracies or on behalf of free market economies or on behalf of just sovereign powers that are, are sick and tired of this, this international influence from China or from the United States, because the United States perpetuates this notion just as much in South Africa, South Asia, um, and Africa. Like it, it happens everywhere. It's the United States, it's France, it's Britain, it's China, it's India, it, it's so many powers. Um, and I think like the, the supranational community should, should put a stop to this um, when the benefit becomes like malintent and that malintent is a lot more visible. Yeah. Um... I would say to stop this neo-colonialism in the United States, um, I think it's all about just um, kind of enforcing the law. You know, maybe even if you are allowing companies from China to come over, um, just saying, yeah, you know, you can be here, but, you know, our house, our rules. And if we do find out that you're doing something that is against what we believe, we'll kick you out, you know. Um, but even further than that, perhaps we start cutting ourselves off from China. Um, and I don't want that to be misconceived as isolationism. I just mean China specifically because there, I think, are even more reasons why we shouldn't have uh, the relationship that we do with the country um, than just this DNA um, technology that they're exploring. You know, like genocide is going on in China. And I think... You know, us cutting back from having a formal relationship with them um, is something that will show, you know, that we don't necessarily support what they're doing. Um, it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having last episode about condoning bad acts, you know. Do we talk with China when they're killing their own citizens? I don't think so. Um, and I think, like, I definitely agree with you. Um, and the, like, you can't condone um, the good acts of a, of a power um, when you're silent to the bad acts of the power, right? Um, that kind of complacency is really dangerous in, in international politics. And I think, um, well, I, well, I obviously understand the importance of that. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, especially in autocratic regimes, when you see so much control in the hands of the few, um, what are your sanctions and, and cutting off of foreign relations going to do to the individuals in those countries? Um, what is your average Chinese citizen going to do when their income starts going down and their living conditions are going down and their civil liberties go even further down because um, of, of a completely cut off 
support line between the two most powerful countries in the world, the United States and China. Um, and I think like this this conversation proceeds like so much further, and I don't want to go too far off from uh, what Nerol's kind of line of reasoning is going to be for this. But like an example is Egypt. Um, there's like dictators who have um, completely gotten rid of every single civil liberty, jails, like the individual, and then their families too. Um, and the United States gives them one point like seven billion dollars a year um, in defense spending and so many other things. Um, it's like just such a, such a crazy use of our international influence, and I think that goes right back to how Neral is is posing our conversation of treating people and treating countries um, who act with malintent, especially when it comes to kind of genetic material and human material. Yeah, when I I'm going to be honest, I think. I do believe that whether we like it or not, this technology is the future. And okay, I'm, I'm going to probably spook some people out here, but I do believe that the United States should rival this type of database with their own. And the reason I kind of, well, I have some evidence, I would say, is um, because <laughs> in the movie Avengers, in the Avengers universe, Iron Man said, we need a uh, armor around the world because the because whether we like it or not, space is coming to coming to us. I believe this is the same because we need a power like the United States democratic regime to have control and have uh, to have a well intentioned use of all this data in order to protect ourselves from the bad intentions of this data from China. Because I believe that whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. And I think we do need to rival it. I don't know. Do you guys agree with me or not? I think this is, I feel like it's a very hot take. I don't know. What do you guys say? Wait, can can you say the quote you said by Iron Man again? I don't have the exact quote, but it's it's, it's basically, I'm sure you guys know. we We need a set of armor around the world. So, yeah. Do you guys agree with that? We need a set of armor around the world. Because, no? So, I do remember that quote. Um, he does say it in Age of Ultron. You know, we need a suit of armor around the world. I don't agree because it's too much power under, you know, for one person to hold or any one system to hold. Like, who cares if they're a democratic regime? I'm not going to trust them with this much power. Um, power should be diluted, in my opinion across the people, decentralized. It shouldn't be unitary. Um, and I feel in a, in a system that you describe, um, it is unitary. And in a system like that, it's very easily corruptible. I agree with that. And I think like that it really doesn't matter what type of regime it is um, because a lot of political bodies just are not trustworthy in general, right? Like, it has nothing to do with, like, I, yeah, of course, Democrats... Dare I say, any political bodies are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll disagree there. Um, I think there's there's some instances where they can be. But um, I think, like, even the most powerful democracies in the world, the United States, the UK, etc., um, like, they they don't even fully operate like democratic regimes, right? Like... In the United States, you cannot directly elect your primary leader. You know what I mean? That like the nine, some of the nine most powerful people in the country, the Supreme Court, are 
elected by Congress, right? And nominated by that one person who doesn't, who has to get, who has to win 11 states to win, you know, like it is, it's impossible to say that like these powers are controlled by people because democratic regimes, a lot of the time when they have this much power, use their democratic functions as a front, right? Um, it's, it's impossible to trust these political bodies because they're like, their desire to be controlled by the public becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as they gain more power. Um, I think like, what do, you, what do you categorize like a trustworthy government by? High political efficacy, um, high approval rating, free and fair elections. Like these are, are, are parts of democracy, but you cannot point to like a single democracy Besides maybe like Sweden, who have like three jets in their military um, that, that hold these norms, right? The United States, there's like 811 military bases around the world that are controlled by foreign powers. And the United States controls 800 of them. 800 of them. And it's because we spend more than the next six countries combined on defense spending. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think we are transitioning into a more illiberal democracy than a regular democracy. Um, and I think like the values in all that you're, you're talking about, saying like we need a democracy to hold these values, the only countries that hold those values are categorized by a lack of centralized power and military force. Be- like Just like Sweden, like Finland, like these countries that have eight soldiers that wear suits instead of like, <laughs> like they, they, they hold like batons instead of like ARs. Because they they don't have to exert military control to hold their sovereignty, right? The people are willing to be governed by those individuals, and the people consent to that governance. Um, like I think democracies are, are characterized by that. Um, I think when you're talking about power, it only comes down to authoritarian regimes that need the military and they need that control to hold on to power. Um, so I think it's impossible to to rival. Um, authoritarian power with democratic power because I think what's going to happen to most authoritarian regimes that exert this much power is that they're just going to collapse on their own. The Chinese people are going to, are going to get fed up. They have to be. Their economic growth is slowing down. The middle class is branching out. It's unsustainable. And just because they're powerful right now doesn't mean they'll be powerful in 10 years. That is where I disagree. I feel like whether we like it or not, the Chinese government will continue doing this and will continue having more and more power over the world through this technology. And I think it may not be the United States, maybe the United Nations takes actions to um, create a rival database for this. Because if we do not, I, I do not see a future that doesn't use this technology. And if we don't rival the bad technology, the bad uses of the technology with any good uses of technology, I feel like we set ourselves up for failure. Okay, I, I get that. Um, you said that you don't think this will ever stop. China won't stop allocating power. Yeah. So do you think then that we're almost destined to have some armed conflict between them, whether it be the United States or the United Nations v. China? Do you think we're destined to have an armed conflict with them. See, I don't know if we destined to have an armed conflict only because I don't believe that this issue 
especially like this issue in itself is being given enough um, thought because like this technology is allowing China to pretty much own the DNA of 700 million people, right? Yeah. And that's that, that cannot be allowed to, to continue, but it is going to continue. And there's not much that we can do to stop it. And if we, my argument would be, if we don't do anything to rival it, we will be subject to it eventually. That's, that's a good point. But I think it's key to remember the principle. Um, and yeah, China's doing all these things, and, but they're doing it without consent. You know, the principle is privacy. The principle is not misdirecting your consumer. And even if that makes us disadvantaged because we follow that principle, I still think it's the right thing to do. That is why I brought up Iron Man and the suit of armor around the world, because that is the argument that, for everybody who doesn't know, Captain America made that same argument, that we need privacy of the people. And I think if we continue with that argument, I think maybe it's a fantasy world that Avengers was put in, but I still believe that it will happen whether we like it or not. And I think uh-huh. that technology will be used if we don't have a good use for it, then it's going to be used in a bad way. So you're saying we should um, we should hold the power. We should match the power so that it can be in our own hands yeah. and it's safest that way. I get that. I think it is key to point out, though, in the movie you're referring to, Age of Ultron, Tony does make that argument, but he makes a killer bot that wants to destroy the world. In pursuing that philosophy, he makes everything go to shit, basically. And I feel like that's almost a message that, or something we can take from the movie is that this authoritarian way of doing things, this 100% all-in order argument, all-in for order, it doesn't work. And it, it sacrifices principle and safety and civil liberties, I think. Yeah, I think, like, exactly what you're saying about, like, combating... Uh, a power like China um, to a more trustworthy power, like in in, in you're, you're advocating for for order, right? Like in the acquisition yeah. of order, order cannot exist if liberty exists. I think, um, and I think that's like I, I think that's a good thing. Um, like it is impossible to like have complete control and order over your citizens if they are allowed to make whatever choices they want, because individuals will always make choices um, that don't necessarily contribute to order. And and, and if democratic regimes, like if you're talking about distinction, like authority, uh, authoritarian regimes, they maintain order while democratic regimes maintain liberty. Um, and I think it's impossible to match that power. It goes against the, the intrinsic nature of those regimes and, and governments. Um, and I, I think will any democratic regime that can maintain that much order, I think will um, ultimately become autocratic. I guess that's a fair point to make. Um, I feel like, see, the threat of that type of technology, I feel like is too great to ignore. And I just, I can see that side of the argument that without, with having an uh, organization with that much power comes the um, almost inevitability of authoritarian um, re- of an authoritarian regime um, 
again, I still believe that the pros outweigh the con, cons in that scenario um, because I, I, I don't think that having a, a little – having a, in a government like China or a government uh, – like Russia, I'm, I'm sure Russia is probably doing the same thing. Uh, and then we don't talk about them in this art in this um, argument, but they're probably doing the same thing. And without having any type of way to combat that, there has to be something that we do, even if it does sacrifice our civil liberties in a sense. Yeah, I get what you're saying, Neral. That the threat is so great that we have to be prepared. But this is what I say. We don't fight fire with fire. We extinguish it with water. Just because they're doing it doesn't mean we have to match their power there. I, you know, we can still fight this without fighting it the same way, I think. And I think we should wait to see what that threat really looks like because we don't know what the threat looks like. We know this type of technology can lead to, lead to huge advancements. But since we don't know what the threat looks like, we shouldn't start um, developing ways to fight it before we know. I'm going to comment on that once and I actually have a question for you, Daryl. Um, I think going along with that analogy of like putting out like a fire, I think like eventually that fire is going to run out of stuff to burn and will die out because like um, we are, our school spoke to a man named Dr. Zach Cooper, um, who is a um, international uh, political guy he like works in that, that field especially with china and he was he was talking about like how chinese economic growth has has slowed um so much and how like the chinese government has had to front and lie about the numbers that they've grown by um and i think like when a power has to start doing that um and they're that opaque and, and there's just such a lack of transparency in government i think it'll crumble by itself i don't think we have to um necessarily attack it at the source um, and if when you're talking about how to combat these regimes and an and action like the Chinese government, what do you pose we do to combat those? Like, are, are you talking about the growth of a genetic um, database? Are you talking about the growth of a military force against them? Are you talking about international sanctions? Like, can you elaborate on how you want to uh, combat that? Yeah, I would say the biggest way we combat this is creating a genetic database that rivals their genetic database. Because if we have, um, if we have the genetic data that they do not have, or they wish to have, we have power over that. We have power over them. And if we don't do that, I feel like they will have consistent power over us. And I would say the the way you were saying there about the China the Chinese regime is going to fall. If it's not China, it will be somebody else. If it's not uh, this regime, it will be some other regime. Yeah, Neural, I'm going to cut you off right there. Though is the fact is is that you're saying we're going to be those people that we should be those people. You know, I, I don't think the safest hands are our own because anybody's hands with the, this power are, are corrupted. Well, let's go back to the fire analogy. Imagine this power is like fire. You know, you can't hold it in your hands or it will burn you to the bone. Nobody can hold this power, I think. I agree with that. Um, and I think if you're talking about like another regime kind of usurping that power. Um, like there's, it, it goes against the nature of democracies to hold that power. Like it, the only other power that can hold it is a is another authoritarian regime. 
and like the second most powerful authoritarian regime in our, the second most powerful authoritarian regime in the world right now is probably Russia. Russian citizens like don't care about their government besides the ones that are like getting actively oppressed and want to shut it down immediately. Like their their acquisition of like military arms and nuclear weapons like is absolutely ridiculous and there's no political stability in that country. Um I think it's really important for a country to have a relatively um healthy scale between population and nuclear weapons <coughs> and russia has more nuclear weapons in the united states with a substantially smaller population their military is is completely not to scale for how the country operates in the political realm um they have they're developing a nuke that lives in the pacific ocean and when it like when the when the connection between the kremlin and this nuke is broken usually in the event of war it automatically targets the united states even if the united states is not the aggressor of that of that holy war holy crap it's called um poseidon it's called the poseidon nuke or something like that it is crazy like they they are <laughs> not crazy. a stable country they're on the defense every single thing they do is on the defensive um they will not hold that power the chinese government yeah. cannot hold that power for much longer um even though they are holding it quite well right now um i don't think the their their stability is strong enough for, to exist and there are no other authoritarian regimes that are going to be able to match the level of the Chinese government. This is unprecedented, the way this authoritarian regime is growing. China is the only example for how a power like this operates, besides maybe the USSR, and we saw what happened in 1991. It is unstable in every aspect of its existence. I can see that the Chinese regime might fall and even the Russian regime might fall in the next 20 30 years. I believe that there will always be these authoritarian regimes and without any doubt in my mind I can say that they will use this technology and they will try to use this technology to gain better power on the world. And again I go back to if it's if it's not China, if it's not Russia, it'll be somebody else. But this is going to happen. I, I, I'm firm in that belief that this is going to be used in a bad way if we don't combat it. And what you're saying, again, Cole, you're saying the fire will burn um, you to the bone, right? I feel I, that may, may happen. But if we have an international organization that is in charge of this database, not just the United States, there's too much flesh to burn for that to go to a bone. I feel like if we have so many people involved in, it, in combating the Chinese, right now the Chinese uh, government's actions f using genetic data, that it will end up being a good thing. I don't, I don't think that you, that we can sit by and wait for the threat to manifest itself. We have to take proactive action. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, I get that. I think it's dangerous, though, sometimes um, in such an undeveloped and field like this uh, to take the moral high ground. Because I feel like, you know, although we like to think that we do know best as a country, we really don't. And I feel when, in reality, you know, we give into that thought and we start combating this and doing exactly what the Chinese are, you know, we've become the very thing we swore to destroy, which we don't want to do, you know? I just, I don't think the way to combat this, as I said before, is um, doing the same thing that China's doing. 
but that's just my thoughts. Yeah, okay. I think this is a good place to um, sum it up. And Yeah, I'd agree. Let's um, move on to Thoughts on the Cast. Thoughts on the Cast. So, what did you guys think about uh, my topic about the global market for our DNA and kind of the relationship that China and the U.S. have globally? I um, the biggest takeaway for me was kind of like it's important to not fight fire with fire, um, you know, to kind of differentiate ourselves from our enemies. Um, but Neral, you also taught me really how big of a threat. Um, something like this DNA collection is. And I, I end up agreeing with you that we do need to start preparing for what this could mean globally. I don't know what that preparation would look like, um, but I would say that that preparation shouldn't be the same as what they're doing. But I do agree that we need to start preparing. Yeah, I think my um, what I drew from the topic the most in our conversation was kind of... Um, the idea of the relationship between like the, the three bodies of the, the, the companies, the consumer, and any regulatory body. And since we talk about Congress a lot, um, I think the regulatory bodies have to take um, a lot more human-oriented approach to, uh, to these situations, um, like what we were talking about, just based on how um, their relationships play out. Um, and I definitely think that, that we just have to focus more on consumers um, rather than like money center organizations and, and companies that kind of can control um, those regulatory bodies through their capital influence. Um, and I also um, really enjoyed our conversation about like kind of whose hands are the best for control. And I kind of realized that nobody's hands are. Um, and I think it's, it's important to, to recognize that our individual hands, like, like, like we are not best suited for power and it's almost selfish. Um, and, like wrong to assume that ours are best for power yeah well throughout the conversation i was kind of butting heads with both of you and i think you guys kind of opened uh my vision to the side of if we're gonna rival china on this then we're gonna be fighting fire with fire and that doesn't necessarily mean a good thing i think the cons although i still do think that we need to prepare um, something, uh, maybe having something exactly like what they're doing is uh, not a great idea. So kind of in the middle now as well. Yeah. So that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at cole.2.kelly and you can find Jake on Instagram at jake.lorenz and you can find her all nowhere because he doesn't have a life. Thanks everyone. We hope to see you next week and remember to always keep an open mind. It's too close.